Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. My name is Daniel Froman. I'm a second-year New Geneva Academy student. And today we're reading from Acts 15. So please open up your Bibles or, or follow along on the screen. Acts 15, 1 through 35. And this is the word of the Lord, which is eternally true. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they also are. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter to them, by them. The apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, 
who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction, have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, seem good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourself free from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because, it, because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. After they had spent time there, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who had sent them out. But it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Daniel. Good morning. Acts 15 is an interlude between Paul's first and his second missionary journeys. It's an important interlude. Really weighty things are being dealt with and are dealt with in a way that it's instructive for us to learn from. So we're going to slow down and take two weeks to look at this chapter. This is the account of the first ever ecumenical council. The Council of Jerusalem. What's an ecumenical council? Ecumenical is a word a lot like Catholic. We say that in the creeds and we always struggle to remember what, it's, what it means. It means universal or from the world, from the known world. And so an ecumenical council is a gathering of church leaders who get together from the known world to try to settle some sort of controversy, usually a doctrinal controversy that is threatening to tear apart the body of Christ. Unity in the body of Christ is of utmost importance to the Lord. This is something he prayed for in John 17 on the night in which he was betrayed, the day before he died. We have a wonderful record of his high priestly prayer, and central to that prayer is this request, Father, make them one. Jesus has a body the body of Christ, and we are members of that body, not just here in this church, but with churches elsewhere that are faithful to him. We are his body, and unity between believers, unity in the body of Christ is of utmost importance to the Lord. And since it's important to the Lord, it's supposed to be important to you and me, to us. All through the New Testament, we're exhorted constantly to work hard to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, to work to, and strive even to be of one spirit and one mind together. This honors the Lord. It answers his prayer and his desire. There's a lot of threats to our unity. Are you aware of that? Lots of different opinions and views, lots of different theologies that threaten, lots of um, personal preferences that threaten. Lots of envies and jealousies and sins that threaten our unity. 
And we have to be calling one another and ourselves always back to the simplicity of faith in Jesus Christ, reminding ourselves and one another to keep the big thing the big thing. (laughs) That is simple faith in Jesus Christ and salvation in his name. And that's what joins us to the Lord and joins us to one another. There's lots of threats to unity. Sometimes they come from without, outside the church. Most often, they come from within. You've met the enemy, and he is us. And that's what we see happening here. Paul, there's a very memorable scene coming up in Acts 20 that we're going to face. And the Apostle Paul is going to have a big farewell scene on the beach a speech he gives to the Ephesian elders. He says, you're never going to see my face again. And I know that once I leave, savage wolves are going to come in and they're not going to spare the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things and leading people astray. We have to be calling ourselves and one another back to Jesus and to simple faith in the Lord. Not elevating our preferences or side issues or minor things or secondary matters to places of unimportance. Well, places of greater importance than they deserve. Very tempting to do that. We must not. What we see here, Paul and Barnabas have just come back home from their missionary journey two or three years. Paul has spilled his lifeblood on the mission field, literally. He was stoned and left for dead. So he's probably looking beat up and different and disfigured even. So he comes back. And this is his furlough time. He's coming back to the church after his missionary work. He should be settling in and just basking in the fellowship of the sweetness and the encouragement of the saints. And what does he face? Controversy. He's dealt with controversy on the mission field, but that's always been from without unbelievers the Jews and Gentiles who have persecuted him. Now, the brethren, the church is divided and it's divided over his teaching. That's what it comes down to, his teaching. Now, I want to say a word about controversies and conflicts in the church. Everybody here love controversy and conflict? No. Who does? It's really hard and disquieting, isn't it? to be at odds with others or to have things that are disturbing and and affecting the unity of the body. These are not pleasant things. But you know, they're not always fruitless. God has his purposes in them. And I want to give you a couple of those purposes. The first is it sharpens our understanding of his truth, what his word actually teaches. The church's understanding of the word and the message gets sharpened and clarified through these conflicts and disputes. We have to turn to the word. We dig deeper into the word, and God uses conflicts to reveal um, better and improve the understanding of his church about what he means in his word. You can see that throughout history. The church has come to a deeper and a better understanding of the scriptures through controversy that has been addressed and worked through. There's also a purpose, which is to not just to approve what is true teaching, but who, who has God's approval. You see this in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, he's to the, writing to the Corinthians, he says, I hear that there are conflicts and divisions among you. And for my part, I believe it. 
But here's what he says. It's an amazing statement. He says, there must be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Through controversy, God shows who has his approval, who is vindicated and who's righteous and who's standing in the truth. It's not just about the truth, but also about those who hold to it are shown and revealed through controversy. Well, this, is, this controversy here in Acts 15 gives rise to a special called meeting down in Jerusalem, the first ecumenical council. The known world at this time, ecumenical is known world. Well, the known world, Christian speaking at, uh, at this time, is not very big. Not very big. There's really two primary centers, church centers. Jerusalem, the little here, things here and there in Judea and Samaria, but it's really Jerusalem, which is mostly J- Jewish, and Antioch in Syria, which is mostly Gentile. And certain tensions, certain disputes, certain differences of opinion and view about what the Holy Spirit is doing and what Jesus and his Messiahship means are bringing these groups into conflict. And that results in them coming together to try to resolve that conflict and render a judgment, which they do through debate, discussion, deliberation, and judgment. And they actually do settle the controversy, at least for a time. There is a good outcome that comes from this attempt to to work through this issue. This first ecumenical council is a success. And as many other ecumenical councils later in history will also be a success and bring about good results for the church. But this is the only council, ecumenical council, that takes place in the days of the apostles. And so the only one that's recorded for us in Scripture, and so very instructive for us in coming to understand better how God intends his church to function and operate and be structured and work through difficulties. So this pattern in Acts 15 is a pattern that this church, Trinity Reformed Church, is trying self-consciously to live out in how we structure ourselves. We're not alone in this. We didn't invent it. You know, we're not the first to come along and try to get back to the Bible and do it the Bible's way. But with, we, are, we are trying to do this and to pattern our structures and our governmental system after Acts 15. This is a Presbyterian church. I am told that if you're authentically Presbyterian, you say Presbyterian. Ask the East Coasters, Presbyterian. I'm from Missouri, so I say Presbyterian. For most of us, when we hear the word Presbyterian, we think infant baptism. That's what we think. But it's really a word that's referring to the governmental structure of the church or system of governance. Presbyterian is a word taken from a Greek word, presbyteros, which is in Scripture in the New Testament, which just means elder. And so it's an elder rule system of church government. It's not the only one in existence, but it's one of the oldest and one that has given rise to the others. Presbyterianism, as a structure of government, originated, the Presbyterians would want to say, was rediscovered. But it originated about 500 years ago at the time of the Protestant Reformation, which was a moment in history where the, the, the reformers 
went back to Scripture to try to reclaim the truth of the gospel and the way of life for the Christian church. The doctrine and the practice. Get back to Scripture. And Acts 15 is a place where they looked for governance, for direction about how to structure and govern the churches. So, you didn't know you were coming for a little Presbyterian lesson, but that's what I think you need. I think we need. Whatever you don't, this is what we are. Whatever you don't talk about, you take for granted, and what you take for granted, you, you risk losing. So let's talk about it for a minute, since this is here, we're, here we are at Acts 15. Let's talk about Presbyterianism and what it is. It features several things, several aspects that I want to talk about. First is a plurality of eldership, a plurality of eldership. Presbyterianism doesn't want a pope or a king or a sole proprietor at the helm. It wants a group of leaders, a plurality of men who are more or less on equal footing, who meet together and through a deliberative process seek to know the Lord's will for leading the church. They make decisions together and they own them together. Okay? I want to read to you from the liturgy that we use when we're ordaining a new elder into the office of elder here at this church. It's from, I don't know, a couple, maybe 150 years ago is my guess. I think it's by B.B. Warfield. And there's always that funny little ad for Presbyterianism stuck in there. I want to read you that ad because it's actually one of the features of this system. He says in the liturgy, It is proper that the government of the church should be in the hands of several men of wisdom and piety, that's holiness, godliness, rather than in the hands of one. So it's better, it's proper for it to be in the hands of several rather than of one. And especially that the pastor should be counseled and assisted by persons of reputation living permanently in the midst of the people in perfect sympathy with them and enjoying their confidence. Thus, here's the ad, thus in the Presbyterian churches, they have have the people secured control of their own church affairs and prevented the growth of bigotry and tyranny on the part of their ministers. Now, can you imagine that if it was me and left to me to make all the decisions and to work and decide in all of the matters, that that could result in bigotry and tyranny on my part? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I love this about Presbyterianism, that it insists on. We can't even form a new church until there's a plurality of elders to govern it. Okay, so this is one of the features, is a plurality of eldership. And we see this in, in Acts 15 in a couple, at least a couple of places. In verse 6, it says, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. So it's not just one man, not even two men, it's a whole bunch of men coming together to settle this matter. In verse 22, once the matter is decided and they're just figuring out how to communicate it to the churches, it says, when um, Luke records it this way, he says, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders. So all the way through, it's this mutuality. We're, we're working this out together. What do we think? This is the biblical pattern, and yet it is not the elders alone without the involvement of the congregation. That's, this is the second thing and feature of, that I love about Presbyterianism. There is a primacy 
of the congregation. What's the primary body of the Presbyterian system? It's not the elders. It's not the presbytery. It's the congregation. Okay? It's not a top-down system of church government. It's a bottom-up. And the, or, or rather, the congregation is at the top of the totem pole or the structure. Who called me to be your pastor? I know there was a transition committee and there was a board of elders involved, but who called me to be your pastor? You did. The congregation did. They, they brought recommendations. They did their pre-work. They explained their reasons for their recommendation, but it was up to you. And in all important matters, it's up to you. Who did Pastor Tim need permission from in order to resign his call as your pastor? Not the elders. He didn't ask us. He submitted his resignation letter, but he couldn't, they couldn't really accept it until you had released him. You, the congregation. Who approves a budget for the church? Again, there's pre-work. You want people to do You don't want to work as a committee of the whole. Oh my goodness. <laughs> We'd never get anywhere. But in the end, it is the congregation that owns decisions of importance and weight. And I love that. I know elder-run churches where the congregation has absolutely no role to play. Our, our, our friends at Bloomington Bible Church, I don't think they'd mind me saying this because they've already had their preaching through Acts 15 and they've come to a very different perspective and opinion than where they started years ago in their, in their structure. But they've inherited bylaws from a decade ago from the church that sent them. And they're now going through the difficult work of revising those bylaws and they're realizing, oh my goodness, this is so bad. The congregation explicitly, like like it's a principle, has nothing to say on any matter of importance. It's all left to the pastor's elders together to make all decisions for the church. That's not biblical, because right here in this passage, we see involvement from the congregation. Look at this. Uh, verse 3. This is amazing. Paul, Paul, the apostle, doesn't go to Jerusalem on his own. He's not a self-sender. It says they are sent out by the church down to Jerusalem, by the church. So the congregation's will is for Paul and Barnabas as delegates to go down there. Verse 4, when they get to Jerusalem, they're received by the church and the apostles and elders, and they proceed to make their reports before everybody. Once In verse 22, again, once the matter is decided, it's concluded this way. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. This isn't a cloister off in the corner. This, the congregation matters, okay, and is involved and helps own the weighty decisions, even in this doctrinal controversy. So plurality of eldership primacy of the congregation, and the third thing is interdependence of the congregations. We see that here. It's just so obvious. There's something that affects them both. They come together as independent churches, showing their in interdependence and in, in reflecting it and how they resolve 
this controversy that's upsetting both their congregations. They come together and they work together to resolve it. Now, Presbyterianism tries to pattern itself and its structures off of that idea that congregations are not completely autonomous, independent things, but rather they share in, in common this identity in Christ. They are his body. And so somewhere, somehow, that's got to mean something. And you see Paul and people swapping gifted people back and forth as needed, helping one another, taking up collections to give here where there's need. There's cooperation, there's involvement, and even in matters of judgment, we see this cooperation. Presbyterianism tries to reflect and pattern itself off of this model, this example, through presbyteries, groups of churches covenanted together, committed to the same authority and structure and principles that, tr- that come together at times to work through issues that pertain to all the churches. We have been um, blessed of God to be, have been a part in the last few years of starting one of these presbyteries and to be a part of it. Evangel Presbytery. We're with a number of other churches. We meet three times a year at various churches. The last one, we just had our 11th stated meeting of Evangel Presbytery this last week in Jasper, Indiana. It was wonderful. It was wonderful not because there was perfect agreement. It was wonderful because there wasn't perfect agreement and we're all exercised and challenged in the very difficult work of being charitable to one another and figuring out how we resolve conflict, disagreement, how we bring, these, bring ourselves into one mind and one spirit together for the good of all the churches. One of the most important things that a presbytery does is it oversees and evaluates the ministers and their qualifications for ministry. If it's a young man seeking ordination, the presbytery puts him through his paces and evaluates him carefully. And that's not just one church making those judgments. It's men, delegates from all the churches coming together and working together to make those judgments about a man's character, commitments, views. Evangel Presbytery is doing really well. It was such a blessing to be at this last meeting and to see what God is doing. It's growing. It's healthy. It loves. We love one another. And and when we have difficulty, we're challenged in our love for one another. And that's good. And we're trying to stand together and reflect this, the nature, the pattern of this passage here and how we relate together. I would encourage, those are public meetings. You're all welcome to attend it's a full day. It's a lot like a business meeting, but you would be encouraged. I'd, I'd encourage you to try to get to at least one of those presbytery meetings and see what it's all about and see what God is doing. So I'm going to try not to make this any more about an ad, an ad for Presbyterianism than it's already been, but I thought that you should know that since we're here at this passage, that this is where we get our governmental structure from more than any other place in Scripture and as we try to live in vital relationship with other churches. There are good biblical reasons to hold to Presbyterian commitments. There are also really good biblical reasons to hold those commitments lightly. And to, not <laughs> and to be charitable towards others with different practices and different views, okay? 
Presbyterians can be the worst, <laughs> the most obnoxious people, the most snooty people, the most judgmental and critical people. Let's not be that. Scripture simply does not give us all the, all the details. You know, we looked at Acts 15, and it's like, that's, that's what we got. <laughs> and we're just trying our best to model ourselves off of Scripture. But you know, there's people with different takes. God is working among them. And in the end, every governmental system is going to let you down or can let you down. It's not a defense against the disorder and perversity of our hearts and against sin without God's help and God's blessing. Okay? But that's the next point I want to make is whatever your governmental system, Presbyterianism or what, the whole point of it is to protect against disorder and to keep the peace and to promote unity in the church. Okay? That is like the whole point of the office of elder and any governmental structure and the whole authority of the church is to keep the peace. And that is difficult work to do. Very difficult. Have you thanked your elders for their work lately? Somebody left the first service and said, you know what I need to do is I need to figure out who all the elders are. I don't know if they're all present um, uh, in town and, and well today, but maybe at the beginning of the meeting we should have all the elders stand up and just so that you can see who they are. Their work is very hard. Keeping the peace is hard. We're an unruly bunch of people. You got an unruly marriage. You got an unruly small group. You've got sin at just about to break free at any moment from your own perverse and wicked heart. Your old man, your own nature, not your nature in Christ, but your own fleshly lusts and jealousies and all these things are, are fighting against the unity of the Spirit and keeping the peace is hard. I want to declare it thank your elder day. Okay? And as I was sitting in the first service worship and thinking about the sermon, I was looking on the backs of the heads of a lot of elders and they're sitting there with their wives. And I also want to declare it thank your elders' wife day. <laughs> because they bear this load together. And it's a heavy load. And you probably think at times, I think I could do it better than they're doing. <laughs> you can't. You can't. I'm sorry to say you can't. And that's not proud. And it's not like us thinking we're perfect and we got it all together. We don't. Trust me. But this is the mistake we make about leadership all the time. And it's inherent in all of our complaints and accusations is this idea that we could do it better. If we were there in the room facing the same decisions, we would have done a better job. And you wouldn't. You just wouldn't. If we got 10 of the biggest complainers in this room <laughs> together and throughout all our existing elders and we gave the decisions to you, at best, you'd come up with the same answer. At best. Okay? Be thankful for your elder day.
today, <laughs> okay? Not just be thankful, but tell them you're thankful. Please. Yeah. God bless you men and wives for your work. You know the best way to encourage your elder? It's in the Bible. Listen to them and obey them. That's the best way to encourage them. And scripture says this is to your own this is in your own best interests. It's to your advantage. Okay? So if you can't do it for them, do it for you. Listen to this from Hebrews 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. If you make it their work a grief, your, their work, which is you need, is not profitable for you. So make their work a joy by listening to them. Obeying them. They have authority from the Lord by the gifting and calling on their life, which you have recognized and appointed them to. So let them do their work. It's especially hard when they come knocking on your door. But trust the Lord to work through fallen sinful men. That's his system. He made it up, not me. Let's talk about the controversy here that's happening. And I want to sort of make this just an introduction for this chapter for next week, okay? Like we said, the Apostle Paul is back in Antioch from his missionary journey following those two to three years of preaching and church planting with Barnabas where he's literally spilled his own blood for the sake of the gospel. They've come back to Antioch, home base, and they've reported to the church all that God has done through them, how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. This was the big takeaway of the trip. The door is open for faith among the Gentiles. And look at them responding with faith. It's amazing. And it says at the last verse of chapter 14, they spent a long time with the disciples there in Antioch. So there's this season And this conflict erupts in this season. And Luke summarizes it this way. Some men, verse 1, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That was the teaching that came up to Antioch from Jerusalem. Now that's Luke's very pointed and helpful summary of this moment and the controversy. But he actually doesn't say the half of it, okay? It's accurate, but there's a lot more that could be said and I think needs to be said so we understand just how really dicey this moment is and how the gospel itself and faith and your salvation here today at that moment hung in the balance, hung by a thread. It's a very desperate moment. I want to open that up for us. Who were these men that came to Antioch? Well, they're Jews. They're from Judea. They're probably Pharisaical Jews of of this party, the Pharisee party. 
like Paul himself was originally. These are men who, had, they are in the church. They're baptized believers in Christ. They've come so far, at least, as to accept Jesus as the Messiah and become part of the church. So they could accept the idea that Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies about a Messiah. Everybody knew there was a Messiah. Everybody was looking for a Messiah. These are men who had accepted Jesus to be the fulfillment of it. They could even, uh, they'd even accepted that Jesus was the suffering servant who God had allowed them in their ignorance at the time to be involved in murdering and killing. And they had come that far. It's amazing. But they could not accept that the Messiah would invalidate any of the old ways, old customs of the law, or anything of the Jewish way of life. They were convinced, as the disciples themselves had been convinced, right up until the very last moment before the ascension of Jesus into heaven. They're still talking about this right up until that last moment. Is this the time, Jesus, that you're going to bring in the kingdom? Remember that question? That's a question the disciples asked all the time. They were looking for something, expecting something, and Jesus wasn't fulfilling that something. He had a different plan and a different vision for total world domination than they expected. Okay? What is that something they were looking for that these Jewish Pharisees were looking for? They were looking for the Messiah to liberate Israel and to make Israel the pinnacle of everything. And sure, the Gentiles, they're welcome in, but they're welcome in on the terms of Israel. They're going to accept our way of life. Our, you know, they're coming in here. We can't all fit in, in Israel, but they're going to ex- they're, we're going to extend this way of life out to all the nations. That was their conviction. The Messiah was going to advance Judaism throughout the world under the banner of circumcision and the customs of the law. They expected the Messiah to require circumcision for admittance into his people, just as the old covenant had done. He expected, they expected the Messiah to require dietary laws of, the, of Moses to be followed, Saturday Sabbath to be observed, temple worship to be observed, Old Testament feasts to be practiced. They could not accept that those things now, well, that they had a purpose of pointing to and preparing the way for the Messiah and for Jesus, and that now they had that, that purpose no longer. They'd served their purpose and were done, done away. That was their view. And they were wrong. They were wrong. There's Old Testament scriptures you can look to to come up with their view. I have some sympathies for them, actually. But they were wrong. They got it wrong. They misread it. And it's not just a small matter at all. And they even start to understand that. Up till this point, they've just been grumbling. Do you remember when Peter came back to Jerusalem after visiting Cornelius and having eaten with Cornelius and the Gentiles? And the only reason he did that was because the Holy Spirit just made it very clear that that's what he was supposed to do. When he came back to Israel immediately, this party, the circumcision party, is grumbling with him and complaining. I can't believe you did that. 
you ate with Gentiles? Up to this point, they've grumbled, but they've not taught. Now they're teaching. Why would they, why would they up their game? Why would they bring that to, to Antioch? Well, Paul has just gone on this big journey. And the result of it is the influx of scores of Gentiles. And Paul, this upstart Paul, has allowed them into the church on new terms. No circumcision, no dietary restrictions, no Saturday Sabbath, no, no temple requirements, new terms altogether. This is getting out of hand. This is going to destroy it all. For the sake of the kingdom, we've got to do something about this. And so they, they start going around, retracing Paul's steps and trying to correct what Paul has done. And they come to Antioch at that time, and they start teaching that unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. And Luke goes on to describe in verse 2 how Paul and Barnabas have great dissension and debate with these men. Fighting for the, for the purity of the gospel. That's what's at stake here. The way of salvation is at stake. Both for Jews and for Gentiles. We'll see that more next week. But that's, that, that debate, that conflict is what results in this council at Jerusalem being called. I want to read a couple of things from Galatians that help us get a better feel for what's really going on here and how desperate the situation is, okay? The first thing I just want to point out is Galatians exists. <laughs> that was Paul's first letter. And that was written about this time. So during this furlough season, Paul's just come from those churches in Galatia and now he's writing to them. And I want to just show you how this letter starts. This letter is intense. It is desperate. You feel Paul's desperation and intensity. Listen to how it starts. So just after, just after Paul's given the pleasantries and established who he is and his authority, he jumps right in to, to the fight. Listen to this. Verse 6. I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him, Jesus, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Very intense. Which is really not another. It's not like it's, oh, there's a gospel and there's a gospel. I choose this gospel over that gospel. It's really not another. What is it? There are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So it's a distortion, it's a corruption of the true gospel. Listen to this, guys. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you back when we were there just last year, he's to be accursed, he's to be damned. As we've said before, so I say it now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. 
I don't care who they are. So that's, that's how the letter starts, and that's how the letter continues. It is intense. I mean, Paul has just poured out his blood. He's just seen the Holy Spirit work in powerful ways, and scores of Gentiles believed, and it's brought joy to the people of Antioch as they hear the report, and now we learn from Galatians that people have come there too. Not just to Antioch, but there too. And they're, dis, dis, they're trying to overturn it all and turn it back towards Judaism. So Paul is fighting for your life and the life of those believers. The second thing I want to draw out from Galatians is this. Let's just look at how much by a thread everything hangs. In chapter 2, verse 11, Paul describes an encounter, a confrontation between him and Peter that happens in Antioch at this time, during this furlough, okay? But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, so he came and visited us up here, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James... Now, I don't think Paul is accusing James. James is the apostle down there in Jerusalem who's like the grand poobah. If, and it's, only, it's not because he holds his authority with a heavy hand. It's because of his godliness. People respect him and look to him for leadership. And I think what Paul is doing this by bringing in James and saying these men came from James. I think he's acknowledging that those men gave the impression or lied that they were sent from James. They'd gone up to Galatia. Somebody had come up to Galatia from, Jer- from Jerusalem claiming or, or letting people believe that they were representing the apostles and particularly James in Jerusalem. And I think Paul's, that's what he's saying. I don't think he's accusing James of anything. And what we see from James is that he sides with Paul. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. So Peter was intimidated by their views, by their presence, by their claims, into giving up his charity and accommodation and acceptance of the Gentiles and not eating with them and and starting to act again like they were unclean and their food is unclean and can't be enjoyed and we can't share fellowship. And implying to them, putting pressure on them again, that they need to be circumcised and become like Jews to belong to Christ. That's what happened. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. So all the, all the Jews. And look, listen to this. With the result that even Barnabas, my partner... Even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, to Peter, in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Jews or compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? You hypocrite! Peter, Barnabas, all the Jews, this whole project, not just a project, but the purity of the gospel and the new covenant and its nature, 
and its freedom and its generosity and its liberality is at stake. And Paul is the only one standing for it at that moment. Oh man, what a desperate moment for you and me as our faith hung in the balance. I want to end with this. Unity. Unity. Are we unified under the banner of the gospel? Are we committed to maintaining that unity with all of our effort, all of our diligence? You know what the best ingredient in the recipe of unity is? Most important ingredient? Humility. Humility. Why do I say that? Well, consider this about Peter. All indications are Peter heard Paul and repented. Isn't that beautiful? Because just in Acts 15, some short time later, they're down together, working side by side, to try to resolve this conflict and put it to rest in favor of the Gentiles. It's beautiful. Peter, that sinner, repenting, hearing Paul, humbling himself. This is the most important ingredient. And the recipe of the unity of the body of Christ is humility. That we be willing to hear rebuke and admonishment and correction from one another. And we admit when we're wrong. And we change our ways. And we adjust ourselves accordingly. And that when there's an issue being debated of importance in the church, we seek to speak our mind, but charitably, knowing that it's just our mind. And how do we come, up, how do we come to know the mind and the will of the Lord? We'll talk about it next week. But there's an amazing, at the conclusion, at the heart of this passage of Acts 15, and all this work is that glorious statement, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I cry whenever things are too glorious to bear. But humble us, stupid us, in our deliberations because of the unity that we have in Jesus Christ and the presence of his spirit and his, the promise of his presence among us when we meet assures us that when we conclude our business, we're able to say it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Humility. You're no king. Jesus is king. How do we know his will? We seek to be unified and to seek his will through discussion and deliberation and debate. 
in which we work hard to love one another and to listen. And when we're wrong and we're not with those who were approved, we join with those who were approved of God. Okay? Let's, let's move to the Lord's Supper, which is a statement about unity. Elders, deacons, if you'd come forward, please. This table is all about unity. Union and unity with the Lord Jesus Christ by his spirit reflected in our unity and commitment to one another here. This is an opportunity. This supper does not create anything. It doesn't create union between you and the Lord Jesus. It doesn't create unity between you and your brothers or sisters in the Lord. Faith does that. The gift of God in the gospel received by faith does that. The Holy Spirit does that as he gives you faith. Okay? And he establishes union between you and Jesus Christ and union forever between you and your brothers under his lordship. But this does symbolize that unity, both of those unities, and it does strengthen it and encourage it and build it up. So that's why God gave it to us, so that we could come again and again and remember our union with him by faith and our ties with one another, which are of utmost importance and sacredness in the Lord. Are you of, are, have you violated the unity of this church, of the body of Christ? You have. All your jealousies, all your backbiting, all your gossip, all your greed, all your sin violates it constantly. And so what do we do? We recommit ourselves in faith and humility to the ways of the Lord, to the communion of saints. And we come again. God's given us another opportunity to confess our faults, and to come and recommit ourselves with his help to live in a way that pleases him. If that's your commitment, I invite you to come. If you're baptized in good standing of a Bible-believing church, even if you're a guest here from another church, we welcome you to the Lord's table. It's his table, not ours. If you have a child here who has been baptized but not admitted into communion through an examination of the elders, bring them up too because there's an elder who wants to pray a blessing upon them so that in God's time, he will work and give them their own personal faith in Jesus. I want to read to you the words of institution as they're found in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul the apostle writes this. He says, I've received from the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
you do show the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this meal and this opportunity to come to you and to be strengthened and fed by you, by your spirit. Would you please set apart these common elements, these humble things, to a sacred and a a powerful use. As we come in faith, would you please feed our souls by your spirit? And I ask, Lord, that you would unify us and keep us unified. Help us to put aside all grudges and bury old hatchets. Grant forgiveness where it's needed and have charitable hearts towards one another. Would you please tie us even more closely together in commitment and affection as we partake of this meal this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.